Like I remember jokingly calling a friend of mine on the basketball court a punk, and he he tried to fight me right there. Everybody on that cell block knew that I was prepared to fight and that I followed through with the fight. And I got tuned up a little bit. I'm not gonna lie, he was a big dude. That's when I see lights behind me start to flash. I didn't even think, I just hit it. I was driving like my life depended on. Then I parked the car, hopped out, closed the door, and I started running. And he pulls out a burner, shanks, like six inches. And then he passes it to me. And he goes, here, that's yours. Don't ever leave the cell block without this. He was the reason I made it out of that place alive. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to The Connect. My name is Johnny Mitchell. You guys, if you're joining us for the first time, make sure to like and subscribe. Turn on alerts to get notified whenever we drop new content. Follow us on all social media. And of course, the Patreon, patreon.com slash The Connect Show. You guys get early access to all the content. You get to call in and ask me stuff. All kinds of cool things going on over there. You get to see stand-up comedy footage that nobody else has access to. Patreon.com slash The Connect Show. And make sure to check out our first vlog from our New York City trip this Sunday. It's dropping with our boy, Unique Mecca Audio. He's a Harlem kingpin. You guys can see that early if you go subscribe to the Patreon. It helps us out a lot. Today, we are talking about street slang, specifically the drug dealer street slang that I used through my journey from nickel and diming, small timing, to blowing up as a kingpin, to getting arrested and going through the belly of the beast in prison. So, you know, the thing about it is, guys, I know that everybody uses slang. I know that everybody, you know, your mom calls weed, grass, and dope, and all that. No, 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 this is real. This is the way we communicate it. And of course, let's be honest. I grew up as a middle-class white kid in Portland, Oregon. So all of the swag, all of the slang, all of the street talk, even the way I moved, it was all influenced by hip hop, urban culture, black people. Let's be real here. They had more of an influence on white, young white men who grew up in the 90s than anything else, right? I mean, they've done more for hip hop has done more to bring the races together in America than the NAACP, Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X. That was what really introduced white America to black culture and we absorbed it. And we, you know, we traded a lot of culture back and forth, but you know, specifically my era, everybody wanted to be a rapper deep down in their heart. Everybody thought they could rap when reality struck, we moved on to basketball. Uh, when we got cut from the junior varsity team, as I did, uh, we moved on to drug dealing. That was, that was, it was sports, drugs, and entertainment. That was the name of a Cameron album. That's the way, that was the mentality that I grew up with. It wasn't enough to make money. It wasn't enough to be rich. You had to be rich in one of those three ways. Sports, drugs, or entertainment. Anything else was unacceptable. Anything else was like living like a square, right? Like, what do I want to grow up and, you know, become a corporate lawyer for? Like, that, that ain't no way to get no money, you know? So I want to talk about how I got started, the slang we used, and how that progressed into eventually getting arrested and going to prison. And you've never heard this kind of slang before, like the real colloquial language that we used, that criminals use, that drug dealers use, that inmates use. 
So let's go all the way back to let's 2003 when I first started nickel and diamond going hand to hand, hand to hand. That's what we called the very first level of the drug game. So we went and copped an ounce, right? Cop means bot. We went and copped an ounce from the sack man. The sack man was like the neighborhood drug dealer. He was the neighborhood. Uh, we'll call him. We'll call him a mid-level drug dealer. I I used to buy from a guy named Sweet Tea. He was a pimp. You guys know this if you've listened to the channel, listened to previous episodes. We would go cop work from the sack man. Work is, of course, the product. That's the merchandise because you're out there working. That's how we, we considered it a job from day one. We never were hobbyists with our slang, right? Slang is another word for slang, sell. Uh-huh, you follow me. So we went and copped an ounce from the sack man. And back then, you had to be careful because you would buy weed that was wet. We called that wet work, right? Wet work is also a term for like murder or assassination. But if your work was wet, that meant you had copped weed, marijuana, that was still not fully dried from when it got harvested. So the danger in that was you might uh, be selling some of it out and a couple of days later, it'll dry up you would actually lose weight. Losing weight was when your, your sack dried up a little bit. And so if you bought 28 ounces, excuse me, 28 grams in an ounce, uh, a week later, you might only have 25 grams, let's say. And it didn't really matter on a low level, but on a high level, if you were buying 10 pounds at a time and those pounds dried up in a few days, you might be down to nine pounds and a few ounces. So that's where you had to be really careful. So that's what we called, that's what we referenced as wet work. Okay. So, but when we're on the first level of the game, we're just getting into the game. We're doing hand-to-hand sales. That's what we call going hand-to-hand. Uh, nickel and diming. Yes. That's a little hacky though. The first, the lowest level, the corner boys, as you know, they call them in Baltimore and, you know, places where they still sell drugs in the corner. Um, that's that's what going hand to hand is. It's direct sales with the customers. All right. Uh, what was the thing we called we bagging up? That was another phrase that we use. We used to bag up, right? We get our shit ready uh, to take to school. So in the morning or the night before, uh, my boy, who you know by now, you don't know his name, but we're gonna bleep it again. He would uh, come over to my house. We would go into my parents' garage. We would take out our scale, our baggies, and our our ounce of weed, right? If that's what we were working off. Maybe we, we'd be working off a half an ounce. Who knows, right? Yeah, you could make money off a half ounce back then. You could bubble, as we said. Bubble is another term. Bubble means making money. If you bubble, that means you profited, right? Um, so we would bag up. We would bag up nickel and dime bags, right? They call them back in the day, they called them tray bags, and we buy just those little tiny little, they would hold, they were used to hold like buttons and we would go down to like the, the seamstress store or the, the little Arab market. Arab means just your corner market. And that's because the Arabs owned them. And of course we were super ignorant. So we called them Arabs, right? So we would go down there, we would cop our little tray bags or our tiny little uh, nickel bags and we would bag up. Another term that we used back then, if your bags were short, right? That means you got shorted. So 
So if so, you sold somebody a bag, I remember I sold this, I was a sophomore in high school and I sold this, this big black dude. He was kind of a gangster, but he was also on the basketball team. I remember selling him, you know, I remember selling him bags of weed the day of the game, right? Like, like this guy could smoke blunts and then go score 30 the same night. Right. Uh, so I, I remember selling him a bag and he looked at it and he goes, don't come so short next time. That was another reference. Short. Don't come short means don't rip me off. Put more weight in the bag. If I'm spending 20 bucks, I want 1.8 grams. Okay. Two grams is obviously a killer deal. Nobody ever sold a full two grams at $20. It was the weight was either 1.5 to about 1.8. Now, my strategy for gaining customers was to sell the fattest bags. Usually that's how I, that's how I got the customers in. I, I took almost no profit margin. In other words, I didn't bubble because I would make my bags so fat that people will be like, God damn, all this for 20 bucks, I'll be back. So that was a little strategy, but to, to come short on your bags was not a good thing. All right, guys, let me tell you about today's sponsor, our favorite online dispensary, Mood. You guys, let me tell you about these new gummies they got out. These new rapid onset fire gummies. These things will have you fucked up in like 10 minutes, dude. They hit the bloodstream faster than that fucking gram of heroin you've been shooting in your veins. Get off the junk, come over to the junk food. Gummies, baby, look it. We got some shit to help you wake up in the morning. It comes with black pepper extract. We got some shit that will focus you if you need to study. And then we got some shit, I don't know what it does. I think it's super strength. You gotta be careful with these. Head over to lomood.co right now. Use promo code CONNECT20 to get 20% off of your first order. Or use the promo code CONNECTFREE to get a free five count pack of gummies delivered straight to you. Guys, support them because they support the show. Get fucked up, life is short. I mean, I'm about to take a pack of these and go fly off the roof right there. All right, let's get back into the show. References for weed, how we called marijuana back in the day. Well, it's, and we're provincial too. You guys got to remember that street slang is provincial. Depending on what part of the country you live, you have different references for drugs. Now, pot is pretty universal, right? Pot, weed, grass, nobody uses that anymore herbs, right? We were just filming with our boy Unique from New York, calling something, calling marijuana weed back then was actually derogatory because that meant your shit was like, it was bush. It was weed. It was, it was gross. Right. But God, what do we call it back then in high school? It was like bomb, bomb or fire or kill. We would say, you got some kill? Like, like, let me see what you got. Oh shit. Is this some kill? Okay. Like killer. It was kill. Right. What have you would have you on your ass that way. And then of course, you know, you go, go listen to E40, go listen to all the rappers that invented all that, all that slang for it. That wasn't what was really important. What was really important was how did you talk about how you sold your weed? Right? So we called customers custies. That was the big one. How many custies you got, right? We called them, you know, we referred to them as dope fiends too, right? Even now, and this is the difference. On the East Coast, dope fiends specifically means a heroin addict. That is a very, very uh, provincial to the East Coast. On the West Coast, a dope fiend 
was kind of interchangeable. Adolphine was a crackhead, a weed head who was hitting you up, bothering you, trying to get some weed. It was kind of a universal term for a junkie. So how many custies you got? It's all about your customer base, right? Crack, obviously. Uh, I mean, crack cocaine did more for culture than almost anything in the 80s and 90s. It gave us art, music, movies, and it gave us slang. Now, on the East Coast, crack is called krills. You got their slinging krills. In places like Philadelphia, Baltimore, outside of New York, they call it ready rock a lot of times. Yo, I got that ready rock, right? And hard white. There's soft white and there's hard white. Hard right, hard white is cook up. Cook up is crack. Now, that could also be derogatory. If you sell somebody some Coke that's not very good, that could be cook up. That means when your shit is stepped on too much, when it's cut too many times. Which brings me to my next slang, slang term. Slang words for cutting cocaine and cutting heroin. Well, there's many, right? Stepping on it. That was a, that's the term that we used when it came to cutting down our Coke. We're going to do a two-step on it. means we are going to cut two different cutting agents into the cocaine. So if that's B12 and caffeine pills, we're putting a two-step on it. Meaning when we buy the product from our Mexican Connects in California and bring it back up to Oregon, it's already been stepped on at least once. We'll put another two-step on it to dilute it, stretch it. Stretching the Coke, as we've talked about on this program before, means taking one ounce and turning it into an ounce and a half. It means literally means creating more cocaine or heroin, stretching it out, making more of it by diluting it with a cutting agent. That's what stretching it means. Doing the dance on it. I used to hear that called doing doing a doing the fuck doing a tap dance on my work. Uh, what we learned when we were in New York filming with our boy Unique, who was selling heroin at the age of 13. He was working a heroin spot, right? Heroin on the East Coast is heroin, obviously. Back in the day, it was referred to as horse or boy. Remember, you ever seen Ray? Brian, you ever seen the movie Ray? Ray's about to get shot up with, uh, you know, the singer, Ray Charles, Jamie Foxx. He's about to get shot up with heroin for the first time. Remember, and his, and his friend is like, this ain't no bitch. Talking about white girl, cocaine. And this ain't no weed. This shit here, boy. So I guess white girl was cocaine. So Colin, heroin. So, so, so coke is the girl and heroin is the boy. So, but nobody really calls it that anymore. It's, uh, it's heroin, it's smack, uh, it's brown, right? We got white and we got brown. So when you're talking about stretching heroin, specifically, our friend Unique showed us uh, what they would call it was we would put a six on it. So putting a six on it or putting a 10 on it means stretching and diluting an ounce or a kilo of heroin six times or 10 times. 
So we could take, say, a half a kilo of heroin, 500 grams, and we step on it six times. And we could multiply 500 grams times six. Now, the competition might be putting a 10 on it. They might be stretching it 10 times and making 500 grams into 5,000 grams. But what that's going to do, of course, is that heroin is going to be a lot less potent. So what he was telling us is that on one side of the street in Brooklyn at this heroin spot that he used to work, on one side was the Jamaicans. He's Jamaican. So it was all Jamaicans, and they were putting a six-step on their heroin. Now, on the other side of the street was the American Blacks, and they would put a 10-step on their heroin. So guess who had more custies, more customers? It was the Jamaicans. Uh, but yeah, and then, you know, go over to England. I recommend watching Top Boy. For anybody that loves The Wire and these drug shows, you've got to go watch Top Boy on Netflix. That's about the ghettos in London. And you hear their slang. Bro, that's on some next level shit. They talk drugs to, to a British gangster. Drugs is food. Food. Okay? And uh, money. No, no, no. I'm sorry. I'm getting this all wrong. Drugs is food. Yeah, no, 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 no. Money is food. Drugs are peas. So we're going to sell some peas and get some food. That's how they refer to their hustle over there. And white girl is white. Heroin is brown. Just white and brown. Very simple, right? And by the way, we never called ourselves drug dealers either. Let's, let's get that very clear right now. We were hustlers. And you'll never hear a drug dealer in prison ever say, I was a drug dealer. I never got locked up for selling drugs. I got locked up for hustling. We were hustling. Or we were slinging. Or we were out there getting money. Or we were out there eating. What'd you get locked up for, man? I was out there eating, right? And eating usually means I was eating pretty tough. So if you're eating tough, that means you're making a lot of money selling dope, right? Selling drugs. Eating. So, but but hustling is is the general term for it. And I loved that. I loved it because it was such, you know, and now white girls on Instagram are like, I'm up here at 5 a.m. at spin class hustling. That's all taken from street drug culture slang. Um, what else do we got? Back to cocaine. So I, if you listen to old episodes, you know that I bought my first kilo of cocaine in San Diego with a friend of mine from college. We then drove it back to Eugene, Oregon, bagged it up and made that shit disappear in a weekend. We never called it a kilo. Back then it was a unit or a brick, a brick of Coke. Now on the, on the East coast, normally a kilo is referred to as a brick or a whole one on the West coast. We called it a bird or a chicken. So if you had nine ounces, you had a quarter chicken. You had, you had 16 ounces, you had a half a chicken. You had a full chicken. That's 36 ounces. If you were putting the chicken in the oven, that means you're cooking crack, right? 
Um, but we never called it a kilo. We called it a unit or a full one. But on the West Coast, in my era, we normally referred to it as a birdie or a chicken, some some kind of poultry, right? Uh, and, you know, viling it up, breaking it down, cooking it into crack would be called, you know, be called cooking it up or chefing it, right? Chefing it. Now, what's really popular now is trapping, right? My book, Days of the Trap, I absolutely stole that from Southern drug dealers, drug dealers from Atlanta, from Florida, from Texas, revolutionized and popularized the phrase trapping. And a trap house was a crack house. Trapping means literally in the original way that it was used from the South means barricading yourself in a spot, whether that's a house, an apartment, and trapping out of it. Cooking, cooking crack in the same house that you sell it out of. Right? But back in our day, yeah, we didn't call it that. We called it cooking up a chicken. Now, oh, this was a good one too. This is one I forgot about. Putting a smash to it. That was another term that I heard crack dealers use back in the day. We're smashing the Coke. Right? Whipping it up. Um, viling it. Right? Let's get moving on to how you distribute it. So how you sell cocaine or heroin, uh, especially on the East Coast, you would hear about tops. Black tops, red tops, blue tops, pink tops. What tops were were the crack vials, specifically in the 80s and 90s, that little crews, whether that be in Brooklyn, Queens, Uptown, Harlem, the Bronx, everybody, when crack hit, it was such, there was so much money in it that every other corner had a different crew and they would vial up their crack in different little crack vials that had different colored tops to them. And you'd unscrew the top, dump out the crack. So, and that was, that was a marketing strategy back in the day. That's how you delineated, delineated your product from products sold up the street by a different crew. So you'd yell out, white tops, I got white tops, or I got them black tops. And like, bam, they know, okay, 154th Street has that good dope, got that good crack. They're selling it way fatter. Those bags, those vials, the black tops are way fatter than the blue tops they go out, got over there in Washington Heights or whatever. So tops is a big one. On the West Coast, there was never really, the, the phenomena of tops was never used much. There really was, crack vials were never really referred to that, even in the ghettos, because that's not how, that's not how crack cocaine was marketed back in the day. Crack was not marketed by tops because it was not ever really sold on the corners. You see, Corner crews in Brooklyn and New York back then in the 80s, that was, that's not used out in LA because crack is where, LA is where crack first began. If you do your history, everybody thinks it was New York. It was LA and it was Rick Ross who was bringing in cocaine from Nicaraguan drug traffickers who were protected by the CIA. That's why, you know, uh, you always hear in, in rap, 
talking about how the CIA introduced crack to the ghettos. It's not accurate. The CIA was not literally teaching, you know, crack dealers from Watts how to take powder cocaine, mix it and turn it into crack. Uh, They weren't doing that. They were just protecting big time drug traffickers from Central America who were selling drugs to Rick Ross, who was then selling it to crack dealers. The way crack was marketed and is marketed is through crack houses. So even back then, crack was sold in, you know, different spots in South Central Los Angeles, and you would actually buy crack and then you could smoke it in a part of the house. So it was like a one-stop shop. It was like a restaurant for crack cocaine. You could come in, buy the, the, the cookup, the ready rock, and then you could go to a different part of the house and you could just smoke it and you could get high all night. And it was a good way to just keep customers in there. And they would just keep, they would just spend all the money they had. So if you're a crack dealer, you want to keep a guy in the house. You don't want him leaving and getting killed or getting in trouble. You want him, if he's got 200 bucks to spend, you invite him into your house, your, your trap house, your crack house, and you sell him crack until he's out of money. So the tops were never, you know, the different colored tops really weren't a way to market uh, your product if you were a crack dealer uh, on the West Coast. Yeah. So we we were moving up in the game pretty rapidly and we used street slang as a way to avoid law enforcement as best we could, right? They get they know street slang too. But more importantly, it was to hide it from our parents. Right. So now I'm in college. I'm starting to move weight. How much weight were you pushing? Weight. Self-explanatory. How much product were you moving? How much did it weigh? So moving big time weight, blowing up, becoming big time. That's what we called to us when we were little piss ants running around. Big time to us was just a guy who was making his living from selling pot or selling drugs, but specifically pot, right? Like, oh, that guy's big time. He can pay his car note. He can pay his rent, he can buy clothes, and he doesn't have to work a day job. That was big time to us. This is before we knew what selling big dope really was, right? Getting rich off of it was inconceivable to us. So, and eating. Oh, he's eating. That was another way to call somebody big time. Like, he's eating off that. That's how he eats is weed. He sells weed. So that was like, that was like, dude, when we learned, when we learned it was possible to make a living as a hustler, just selling weed, not working a side job, not selling a different kind of drugs, right? Even though we did that, of course, we sold shrooms and we sold Coke. But when we learned that it was possible, if you got lucky enough and made the right connections to just make 40 grand a year selling weed, eating, selling weight, that was like, I, I was just happy doing that. I could have done that for the rest of my life. At least I thought that back then, you know? So we're starting to sell weight. And we would call up to our suppliers, The Connect, the name of this show. That was the supplier. Did you have a Connect? Did you have a plug? The Connect, the plug? Come on, guys. We know what this is. That's the. 
That's the person, the wholesaler, the manufacturer, the one who is letting you eat. And for us, that was the grower. Those were the growers in Southern Oregon and Northern California. My rednecks, we called them rednecks. Those were our white boys. Those are the dudes, Vietnam vets, laid off electricians, working class whites. Those are the dudes that had the peas. And then, of course, our essays. Essays were the Mexicans. And why do we call them essays? Because, hey, what's up, essay? Hey, Holmes. So even though that was used as a blanket term, that's how Chicanos talked. We didn't ever deal with Chicanos. We dealt with, you know, fresh off the boat Mexicans, dudes that had come straight from the border. That's why they referred to Border Brothers cocaine as just that, Border Brothers. So this isn't some shit you got from a guy from an essay on the streets of uh, East Los Angeles. This was a Border Brothers shit. This was a Mexican who no speaking no English bringing you your shit. So we always knew we needed to find somebody who spoke no English. If you had a connect and he didn't speak no English, that means you were getting it for the low. Getting it for the low means you were getting it for the low price, also known as the ticket. So I would call down to Southern Oregon right? On my bat phone or my burner phone, which is the untraceable cell phone, prepaid cell phone that you would buy from 7-Eleven or wherever, you know, your local convenience store. It's how drug dealers operated back in the day. There was no FaceTime. There was no iPhone. You would go get the bat phone. Don't ask me why they called it a bat phone. The brand was track phone. That was the brand. You can look it up. I think like there's like a federal investigation going on because they exclusively marketed their phones to drug dealers because you would never want to get a wire up on your phone by the feds. A wire is a wiretap. So I would take my bat phone or my burner phone and I would call down to the connect and I would say, what's the ticket on those things? What is the ticket on those things? Very common phrase I used back then means what's the price on a Per pound. What's the price per pound of marijuana, sir? That's what that meant. And he knew exactly what I meant. Or what's it going on one of those things? Like something very, very subtle like that. Like what? Uh, another one we used. What's it hitting for? Have you ever heard a drug dealer back in the day? Or, or a smoker? Smoker was also used as a, a term for a crackhead. A crackhead might say, yo, what, what, what they hitting for? That means what's the price on a gram of crack? So I would I would call up the connect and I would say, what are they hitting for? And he would say, he would say two or 2.3. 2.3 was $2,300 uh, for, for a pound of wheat. So we used slang constantly. It was a constant, it was a constant way of living. I remember, uh, you know, because back then you got to remember when you're a small time hand to hand dealer or when you're a mid-level dealer, when you're selling out ounces and QPs and half P's to other small time dealers, your phone is ringing constantly, constantly. I mean, I remember being scared to go to class when I was at the University of Oregon, if it was more than like an hour, because I would look at my bat phone and I would just see it ringing and I'm like losing customers. Well, uh, you know, some assholes trying to tell me about the Constitution. Or teach me about, you know, feminism, whatever class I was in, right? And so how we used to refer to custies, customers calling us up, we'd say, oh, there's money on the line. So I'd be kicking it with my boy, smoking, doing whatever, talking, laughing, playing video games. And I would see my bat phone ringing. I would say, 
hang on, there's money on the line. And so they would know my, my civilian friends, my non-criminal friends would know, oh, he's got a drug customer on the line. I'd say, what well, one second, it's money on the phone. God damn, I loved it. I love those days so much. When do I get to talk like that now? You know, it's like those days are gone, man. And I fucking, I miss it. I miss it sometimes because it was like, it was a language. The thing about like Ebonics or street slang, this drug dealer slang, it, it felt like a language for us in the culture. It was just, it was just us. You don't understand it because you're not in. You couldn't possibly understand this these colloquialisms that us cool guys, us street people, us hustlers know about. So it was very, and now of course, you know, it's all in the culture. It's on every podcast. It's on every show. There's money on the line, B. Hey, yo, B, we got money. Hey, it's money at the door. If a, if a custy is knocking at your door, it's money at the door, you know? Now, of course, in this era, if you've listened to the show, if you know my story, what did we have to deal with? What did hustlers like me, what were the dangers of our business back then? The jooks. It was the jooks. That's a robbery. That's an armed robbery. When you get juxed, that means you just got stuck, right? We used to get juked by jack boys, jack boys or stick up kids, as they became popularized with back in the day in New York. That's New York slang. Stick up kids is out to tax, right? That's gangstar, I think. Those were those were stick up kids. Those were armed robbers. Those were what they also called back in the day wolves. And the wolves were criminals who, whose entire business was robbing drug dealers at gunpoint. That's what a jack boy is. That's what committing the jooks is. Like you just got juxed for all your work and now you're fucked in the game. We got juxed multiple times. Told you a story on this podcast. It was noon on a weekday in Eugene, Oregon. I'm kicking it. At the spot, I got work at the spot too. So I was I was slipping. Slipping is, of course, when you're slipping, you're making a mistake, you're getting sloppy. I was keeping work at the crib and I'm playing video games with my buddies. And a couple of dudes in ski masks ran up into the house as we're playing Mario Kart for N64. I'm beating my time on Chaco Mountain. And now I got a guy juxing me. He's got the joint in my face. He's got the burner. A burner is, of course, a gun. You know, on the East Coast, they refer to them as joints or cannons, uh, bangers. We called them burners back in the day. Burner is also the term we use for shank in prison, but it was a burner. So I got this guy with the gat, with the burner in my face, juxting me. That's the robbery, right? Of course, you know, you're always worried about the cops, too. The cops were, you know, you dorks call them the five O, right? We would never call, we would never call cops the five O. That's like what your parents who watched Hawaii five O in the seventies referred to as, uh, referred as cops to, right? We would never do that. That was already like passe. One time we called it one time. One time we got one time. Hey, one time's up the street, right? Uh, the Jakes. 
And the Jakes, I don't know why they're called the Jakes. We call them the Jakes because Big L, one of the greatest rappers in history, called them the Jakes in his song Ebonics. Jakes is cops. So we we just adopted that, right? Um, we call them the in Spanish, the DEA is referred to as Los Tres Letras, the three letters. Those three terrifying letters, DEA, Los Tres Letras, La Aldea, um, the feds, the Feddy boys, we called them the boys. We'd say the boys are up the street. Be careful, right? Uh, but, you know, I don't need to get into co cops, the fuzz. I mean, you know, civilians have many different ways they call, refer, refer to cops to pigs, right? I don't call cops pigs, guys. We support the blue on this station, you know? <laughs> My producer's uh, not happy with that. Take that part out, Brian, if you must. Um, so we're going along. We're going along, and we're big-timing now. We're moving, I'm talking, we're moving real weight. We're kingpinning it, guys. And to us, you know, of course, I was not really a kingpin, but I was a guy making a million dollars. I had a million dollar spot. A million dollar spot was just that. It was a drug operation that netted a million dollars or more a year. That's specifically what a million dollar spot was. Traditionally, a million dollar spot was a crack house, a heroin dealing spot. As we saw with our friend Unique in New York, even weed spots back in the day in places like New York were million dollar spots. And that was very rare. It was rare even, even back then, but in my area, it was exceedingly rare for just a guy like me, a, a single operator, not a mafia guy, not connected to a cartel, well, connected, but not dealing directly with a cartel. It was rare for a guy to make a million bucks and have a million dollar spot. So now I'm kingpinning it. I got a million dollar spot. And what happened though, as you know, I took a fall. That means getting arrested. Getting arrested is taking a fall. It's getting knocked. You heard Mitchell got knocked or he got popped. That's That means you got locked up. You were slipping in the game. Slipping is sloppy. Slipping sloppy. And then the one time blitzed. You got blitzed by the one time. A blitz is a police raid. So the cops blitzed my spot. Caught me slipping. I didn't have any work in the crib, but I had cash. I had money, right? Again, I don't need to talk about slang terms for money. You know what it is. My favorite slang term for money is what the Mexicans call it, feria. Tienes, oh, sí, él, él tiene mucho feria, güey. Mucho lana or masa. That's what the Dominicans refer to as, uh, as money, masa, because that means uh, dough, right? Él tiene mucho masa, right? So they caught me. Caught me slipping. I got knocked. And they took me, took me to jail. The pokey, the big house. Ah, Susie's house. Susie's house is slang term for Susanville prison in California. But you got knocked and you're locked up, right? You're locked up in the feds. Or you're locked up in the state. I got sent upstate. Getting sent upstate is another slang term that became popularized by New York drug dealers back in the day, because when you got New York City is at the very southern tip of the state of New York. So if you caught a state bid, right? 
So if you've got a prison sentence from the state, they would send you to one of those prisons in upstate New York. That's where the term getting sent upstate or up north, that's how that term got started. Same if you're if you're a drug dealer in LA, most of the prisons are north of Los Angeles. So you get locked up, you get sent up north. So if you go listen to a great Mob Deep song, one of my favorite songs from the rap group Mob Deep is Up North Trip. It's up North Trip. So if you got sent on a trip up north, oof, that means you got put on the Grey Goose. If you listen to this podcast before, you know the Grey Goose is the bus that they put you on after you get sentenced, shackled. That's what drives you on your trip northward to your new home for a while, right? So you take an up north trip on the Grey Goose. So I was locked up in jail fighting my case, right? I was locked up in the county jail fighting my case. I got a lawyer. What were the slang terms we've used for lawyers? You know this. Either your lawyer is paid. Do you have a Jewish lawyer? And didn't even matter if he was Jewish. If he was a good lawyer, he was paid. That was a Jew lawyer. So if you have one of these Jewish boys defending you, that means you had action on your case. Now, what did have an action mean? Have an action means you had a good shot of either beating your case or at least getting uh, a favorable plea deal. That's what happened. Oh, this guy's got action. The cops got a faulty warrant or, or the, the snitch who was testifying disappeared. Oh, he's got action. He's got real action at beating his case. Now, if you didn't have a Jew, you had a dump truck. We've talked about, or just trucks, right? Oh, my lawyer's a truck. A dump truck is a public defender or a public pretender, as you heard a lot of people call them. And that was a dog shit ass lawyer. If you had a dump truck for a lawyer, man, you better kiss your family goodbye because you might be getting sent on a long trip up north. Now, not all public defenders were bad. To be, to be fair, a lot of good, highly paid defense lawyers start out as, as, as working for the state. Free lawyers, right? But these guys got 30, 40, 50 cases at a time, dude. They are running ragged. They're either fresh out of college or they're just do-gooding people. You know, my, my, uh, one of my good friends from childhood, his parents were lifelong public defenders. Good lawyers, but damn. How good can you be when you're fighting, you got 100 cases uh, uh, with the same crimes on them? And trucks would, trucks would immediately try to get you to take a plea. Like in my case, they kind of caught me dead to rights, as the old saying goes. Right? They caught me with so much money that there was no way I wasn't going down for something. But my Jewish lawyer, who is not Jewish, by the way, we called him the fat man, still a Jewish lawyer. He was like, kid, you got to wait it out in here. He was a strategist. He was like, you're, you're going to go down for something. There's just there's no way we can convince them that almost a million dollars in cash unaccounted for was found, you found it in a taxi cab, as Tony Montana's lawyer told him in Scarface. Tony, baby, it's hard to convince a jury 
That's $3 million. You got it in a taxi cab. So my, what did my lawyer say? He said, stay in here, stay in here because they can't prove it's drugs. So you're just going to stay in jail, suffer. It's going to suck. But the longer you can wait it out in here, the more apt the DA is going to be to make a deal, to give you a plea deal that's favorable to us. So I said, cool. But a truck lawyer, a dump truck would simply take out the sentencing statues and be like, yeah, okay, so they're they're charging you with money laundering, uh, drug conspiracy, bribery. Yeah, you're looking at about five years, 10 months. They would say that. To, I remember that because they assign you a dump truck as soon as you get arrested, like automatically. So I remember talking to my dump truck on the phone and he he says, he says like with the casualness of ordering a cup of coffee, he goes, yeah, you're looking at about five years, 10 months. And I was like, okay, okay, well, I will never be talking to you again. Uh, as soon as I get a hold of my fat man, uh, you will be having, you'll have one less case. So don't worry, I'll be fine. Because you can, can you imagine if you don't have money and a dump truck is, is talking to you like he's the prosecutor? It's terrifying. That's why people become jailhouse lawyers. You've heard this slang before. A jailhouse lawyer is a career criminal who has been forced to kind of defend himself. That's why you see a lot of these inmates, they know a lot about the law because they essentially have to fight their own cases and their lawyer is just there, uh, you know, as window dressing basically when they go to court. So I had action on my case though. I had me a paid Jewish lawyer. Yeah. So got sentenced got shackled, got put on the gray goose. Not going to be going home, boys. Right? They're sending me off on a long ride. Not very long. Just a couple of years, right? We called that a cat nap. That, was, that ain't nothing. We used to say that's nothing. <laughs> I would hear guys get sentenced to four or five years and be like, "Woo, that's nothing. And I'd be like, damn. I, I got two and a half years to do and I, gotta, I'm, I feel like weeping. I'd already been in fights. You know what a fight is in the county jail. That's a fade, a stand-up fade, right? Or a straight-up fade. That means no knives, no stickings, no weapons, just a one-on-one -on -one fight. That's a fade. That's what it means to fade. And remember, if you show up to mainline in any jail or prison in America, mainline is what? People that have been paying attention? That is general population or GP. Gen pop. That's what mainline means. Mainline means you're in there with all the other inmates. PC is protective custody, and that is a completely separate wing of the jail or the prison used to house snitches and sex offenders, right? People that have bad paperwork. Bad paperwork literally means your crimes are for uh, so some sexual nature, pedophilia, rape, etc., or you are a rat. That means you have a, a jacket, a snitch jacket, a sex jacket. Literally, your sentencing paperwork contains one of those two things. That's bad paperwork. But everybody else who's got good paperwork, you're on the main line. And when you hit main line, baby, you got a fade straight up. And my fade, my first fade was with a skinhead dude, as, as I talked about on one of the episodes. Big skinhead dude named Cameron, also the name of my brother, who's not a skinhead. This guy's name was Cameron. 
he had a swastika on his neck. And I had to go catch a fade as soon as I hit Gen Pop. As soon as I hit Mainline, I had to go catch a fade. I didn't even have shoes on. I had Bob Barker plastic sandals on that they give you when you first hit the county, right? So my case gets adjudicated. I got 36 months with some good time. I should be out in half that, right? This is before I knew that there is no good time when you're in a maximum security prison. They put me on the gray goose. They sent me up north. And now I'm locked up. I'm what we call fucked in the game. The, the drug game will have you fallen one minute and then fucked the lowest of lows the other minute. It's like being in a toxic relationship. That's, that's what the game of selling dope is like. The highest of highs and the lowest of lows. So now I'm in the game. Um, yeah, I'm in prison. Prison slang is the the deepest slang, uh, the most uh, the most colloquial slang, the most used slang. Places that uh, a place where you use slang more than any other anywhere else on earth, right? Except for the military. So I'm just going to go over this stuff that's not quite as known, perhaps. Putting money on the books. That means you have people sending in money to your commissary. So put some money on my books is just your inmate account. Inmates have accounts, kind of like a bank account, right? It's exactly the same thing as a bank account, only it can only be used for things you can buy in prison. Phone time. So you have prepaid phone minutes that come out of your inmate account. Uh, buying shoes, food, et cetera. You could even send money out, I believe now. And now I know in prison, there's like FaceTiming. You can, there's all kinds of weird shit. You can buy books, anything that's for sale in prison legally. That is money that's taken out of your inmate account, your books, right? So telling your boys to put some money on your books means they send you money to your inmate account. Right now, the most common ways that inmates spend money from their books is at canteen or commissary. That's where you get to go buy snacks, purchase food that's not served to you three meals a day. Right. So if you're the poorest, if you're indigent, if you are a completely penniless inmate, your life is going to suck, but they still have to feed you. They can't let you starve to death. You have breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Boom. Everything else, all other food, snacks, reading material, that's all bought off the commissary, the canteen. And that's slang that's taken from the military, right? Uh, we called it going to the store. So every week, you get to go down and go to the store. And that means you get to go to the commissary area and, and you mark off what you want to buy. I want to get three Snickers bars. I want to get 10 packets of Top Ramen. Back in the day when they had cigarettes, you buy your packs of cigarettes. Now you got to buy it off the black market, right? You got to go to the shot caller or whatever gang has the tobacco. But back then you buy your cigarettes, your shampoo, your soap, your deodorant. Boom. That's canteen. That's commissary. So the ballers, the, the big time drug dealers and the, uh, you know, just the rich inmates, they're living, I won't say good, but they're living a lot better because they're canteen. Every week when they went to the store was fat. They would come back with 
gigantic gallon bag sized uh, Ziplocs filled with fun snacks. I'm getting hungry thinking about it right now. And trust me, you will get skinny if you don't have money on your books to go to the store every week if you are locked up in prison. They serve you enough food, enough, whatever the, the Surgeon General tells you, whatever the caloric amount is, the amount of calories you need to not get uh, malnutrition, they don't give you 0.1% over that in jail. These are the, their budgets. They're always in the, they're, they're always in the red. You always hear about budget cuts. That's all you hear about in prison. We never have enough money to give you guys anything extra. We got plenty of money to lock you up. We got money, whatever money the feds need to for the war on drugs, we'll always find it. We'll always find money to keep your ass in here. There won't always be money to feed you properly. So you don't got fucking, you ain't got money on your books to go to the store, to go to commissary. You will be hungry day in and day out. It is true torture. And I'm just thinking about my own experience in the county jail, where if you got in fights and got sent to the hole, you would get your canteen or your commissary privileges taken away. And I'm just thinking about how hungry I was all the time trying to survive off those county jail budget meals. It was torturous, torturous. But that's what going to store and going to canteen means. Now, we referred to lifers, people doing life in prison, as doing all day. If you were doing all day, that was unfortunate. That meant you were probably never coming home. You were never seeing daylight. That meant you were doing life without parole. My cellmate, Jimmy, as many of you know, was doing life without parole. He was doing all day. Now, if you were doing 20, 25, that was half a day. And that, to me, that slang really hit my heart. Even now, as I talk about it, it gives me the chills. Because it's so poetic in a way. If you think about it, right? You're doing it all day. What is life? What is, what is a, a human life if not just one long day? What is today if not just an extension of yesterday? It's all one long rolling day. And sure, it gets dark out because the sun is the furthest away from wherever you're at on earth, but it's just one long continuous day. That's all that is. So prisoners have to spend all day sometimes in prison. Think about how beautifully, I don't even know if these idiots understand how deep that, that saying is, that meaning is. Man, the guy, the guy caught a body and he's doing all day. It means he killed somebody and now he's got life. How sad. So if somebody was doing all day, I tried to avoid them. Uh, I was locked up with Jimmy who was doing all day. So of course, that gave me the right to speak. But if, you, if you're short timing, as we said, meaning if you have five years or less on your sentence, even 10 years or less, you were known as a short timer. You really did not have the right to speak to somebody doing all day unless they spoke to you first. That was the pecking order. Why, why does this guy doing all day or doing 30, half a day, why does he want to speak to you? I got two years to do. I'm making plans. I'm making plans to get out. I'm writing dirty letters to my girl talking about what I'm going to do to her when I hit the bricks. 
and hitting the bricks, that means getting out. Why does a man do an all day who's never going to see home again? Why does he want to hear what you have to say? Why don't I just pull out a burner, a bone crusher, a shank, a knife, and stab you to death? That's why you didn't do that. You didn't do that because you respect a person who's in here doing all day, doing life. So it was just, you know, it's got a hierarchy, just like everything. Prison has a hierarchy, right? And, you know, if you're looking at it through the lens of, oh, it's kind of like high school, um, the guys doing all day, the lifers, they were the super seniors. They're the ones who've been here six years, still haven't graduated. They're maybe they're the jocks. They're the cool guys. They're the football players. They're the, the ones wearing the varsity letterman's jackets. They were, they are the, in the hierarchy of prison, they're at the very top because they've normally done something to get stripes, to get respect. If you've committed a crime that's got you sitting in prison all day, it's usually for high-level murder or if you're in the feds for drug trafficking, right? And especially if you were a drug dealer doing all day, I mean, that was like the coolest shit to be, right? I mean, it's unfortunate. Nobody wants to be you, but you got some stories. You got good paperwork. You got crimes that really merited you being in here. So you had that kind of respect. So if you were doing all day, short timer like me had to keep his distance unless summoned, right? Because if you're summoned, that's an OG, original gangster. I got to go, I got to go hear him out. I had to put in work. We all know what putting in work is, means committing crimes. I had to put in some work for my cellie, my cellmate, Jimmy, who was doing all day. And that's because he let me live. And what does let me live mean? He let me live. He watched out for me. He made sure that nobody touched me. Touch is kill or beat up, right? So that was what doing all day meant. And really, I, I, I almost tear up thinking about it now because, uh, man, what a profound, horrendously sad, but, you know, in a way, beautiful uh, slang term for somebody doing life. This is a, this is a, this was one you heard all the time. He got punked out. If somebody got turned into a punk, a punk was the worst thing to be in prison. You could call somebody a bitch. You could call somebody bleep it. A f you could call somebody the N word even wasn't as bad as calling them a punk. You call somebody a punk. You better be ready to square up and catch a fade. A punk was a sissy, somebody who didn't have heart. To punk somebody out meant to publicly embarrass them, right? So maybe, um, you know, when I was at Coffee Creek, which is the holding facility in Oregon, where after you get sentenced from whatever county you get locked up in, you fall in, they send you there and, to, and you wait there until, you, uh, until a bed space opens up in a, a prison, a state prison. And that's where you get shipped to, right? Depending on your security clearance and all that. I've talked about this before. <clears throat> My first day at Coffee Creek, I, it was at breakfast. And I'm in, dude, I'm disheveled. I'm exhausted. I'm demoralized. I don't know. You know, I'm happy to be finally out of county jail after almost a year of fighting my case. But I'm, you know, I'm in no mood to be around any human beings. I want to crawl into a hole and die, right? Um, 
my first moments of my first meal. Okay. I've got some oatmeal. I've got a cup of cold coffee and I've got my cinnamon bun, right? I'm as happy as I'm going to be. Okay. This dude walks by and just takes my tray like a bully in high school, like a John Hughes movie and just shoves my tray of breakfast off the table and it just lands and just my breakfast just splatters everywhere on the ground. Right. That is the definition of being punked out. He punked me out publicly in front of the rest of the inmates, the rest of the chow hall, the guards, because he wanted to test me because I had not, I was at a new facility and I had not caught, caught a fade. So if I were to allow that to happen, to get punked out and not answer it, I would have a punk jacket on for the rest of my stretch, the rest of my prison stretch. And, and being a punk was just third, was, was almost as bad as being a, you know, having a sex jacket or a snitch jacket, right? That just opened you up to all kinds of brutalities and extortion. So of course I said, okay, catch fade. I just shouted at him, catch fade motherfucker. So uh, so, but I said, you know what, instead, I'm not going to catch one right here with you. Cause that's, he's going to take us to the hole. The guards are right there. I said, catch me in my cell later. As soon as line movement happens and what is line movement? You guys, that's when, that's when the doors open up. That's when your cell doors open up and you guys are allowed to go out, go to the rec yard, go to work, um, whatever, go to the chow hall. As soon as those doors open up, I told him run into my cell and come see me. And he did that. And we caught a fade. We caught a fade, right? But everybody on that cell block knew that I was prepared to fight and that I followed through with the fight. And I got tuned up a little bit. I'm not going to lie. He was a big dude. He was like a 6'4". He was a, he was a native. Natives are Native Americans, Indians. That's, that's a pretty prominent prison demographic. This dude was like 6'4", probably 220. I got in a couple of licks, but you know, I was, I, you know, my left eye was pretty much swollen, closed. Um, I had a bloody nose, you know, he got me, but I stood up to him. I faded with him, right? Because to not would have been to get punked out. Like I remember jokingly calling a friend of mine on the basketball court, a punk. And he, he tried to fight me right there. And I was like, Whoa, sorry, dude. I was just kidding around. I was busting balls, but you don't play that way. Just like how you didn't make sex jokes, especially with the black guys They would say, don't sex play me. This is another, this is another phrase you've got to know if you're in prison. No sex play. No sex play means no joking about doing gay shit. Okay. So you would tell a guy like you tell your friend, ah, suck my dick. You know, just be jaw jack and busting balls. He would say, Don't sex play me. And that meant do not kid about that. And black guys, you know, there's something about white boys. And especially Mexicans, we love saying verga and oh yeah, you know, suck my dick, whatever. Black dudes are not about that. So do not sex play meant don't joke about gay stuff, sir. But speaking of gay stuff, here's some of my favorite prison slang about homosexual activity. Clip this one, Brian. Six months to the gate, six months to the gate. What did that mean? That meant if you quit doing homosexual behavior six months before your release date, 
that meant you were good, not technically gay. I'm trying to do a bit about it in my act right now. How funny is that? And that wasn't just like a, that wasn't just a, a term. That's well, that wasn't like a funny term. I mean, it's hilarious, but that was not an ironic statement. That was an actual unwritten rule in prison. Six months to the gate, you had to stop doing whatever kind of gay stuff you were doing with another inmate or else it was technically gay. But if you had a couple years on your sentence to go and you've been locked up 20 years and yeah, you might, you know, find a dude in a shower that you take a liking to and you both start, you know, doing whatever, what's deemed illegal in a couple of Southern states. Hey, it's not gay because it's, you, you, it's not gay. It's not gay. You got to get it out. So <clears throat> that's what six months to the gate meant. Hey, as long as you keep this, as long as you quit, you could be two married men, dude. I knew about, I saw married guys, big shot collar black dudes holding hands. That's why people always joke about like prison rape. I'm like, that was a fraction of the gay stuff that went on. A sliver of it. The majority of it was consensual. Usually between two straight dudes. But you've been locked up 25 years. You're going to want some affection. At least some hand-holding, some butt-clenching. You know? At least a couple of hugging, maybe some nipple twisters, right? So, you know, you'd see these big married gangster dudes, you know, finally crossing over to the other side, right? And now I know a lot of people have opinions about this that like, oh, it's never, it's, it's, I'll never go out that. Maybe. Maybe, maybe, but you're not, you don't have to do life. You're not doing all day. You don't know what it's like to, and many of these prisons now have taken away conjugal visits. So you can't even have sex with your wife. You might need to touch something. You might need to feel the soft lips of another human being on yours. That is not gay. Not as long as you stop. Six months to the gate. Six months before your release date. That was one of the funniest things. Now, of course, getting your ass took, getting turned out, that is another thing that's slang for when you go to prison and you get turned out. You get sexually assaulted or against your will. You get whatever that is, whatever whatever kind of vernacular you want to put on it, raped or, or, or physically taken and turned into a, somebody's bitch, right? Somebody's sex slave, whatever that is, that's getting turned out or getting your ass took. You never wanted to get your ass took. You want to give it consensually or get it consensually. You never want to get it took. Getting took, not good. Yeah? Now, moving on. Uh, yeah, we've talked about this before. A prison shank is a is a knife. It is a it is a what they call after somebody gets stabbed. They call it a um, what do they call it? An inmate manufactured weapon. This man was stabbed with an inmate manufactured weapon. That is a shank. We've talked about all of different kinds of shanks on this show before. I'm not going to get too deep into it. A bone crusher. That is the kind of shank that's made out of steel. That's a piece of steel. That is going to kill you. There were many shanks that would have been very difficult to kill somebody with. You know, a plastic one that's been whittled down, a toothbrush, a pencil. Now, of course, you hit an artery with that. Yes, somebody could bleed out conceivably. But if you were in a riot and you got hit up with 
one of those plastic things, it's really hard to get deep and hit a vital organ, especially in the body, right? In the meaty part of the body. Um, very difficult to get a kill shot with that. A bone crusher was different. That's something that could go through you. And, you know, you see those things. They're like a foot long sometimes, the things that they take off of inmates when they do, you know, sweeps, when the guards come in, when the cops come in and they shake down cells or whatever, and you find a piece of steel, a bone crusher, that is meant to kill. Uh, so I won't get into that very much, um, but you guys get it. That's what that's what a shank is, a burner is. That's what uh, keeping heat on you on in prison. That's having one of those on you, right? Like I kept my heat on me, especially when I was getting ready to, to get out of uh, maximum security prison at Two Rivers. I, I never went anywhere without my shit without my, my burner on me. And eventually Jimmy stopped letting me take my weapon out because he didn't want me to get caught with it and get hit with an extra charge or, or, you know, have to lose my good time. So he would send a couple of bodyguards with me, a couple of dudes, and they would be strapped. They would have the bone crusher on them. They would have the piece on them, whatever it was, right? The ox, the ox is another one. An ox is a razor blade. Oxes, in my experience, were not very common, but you would take, you would have a, a guard smuggle you in a blade, right? Those are the little, the blades about that long that you see in movies, people cutting cocaine up with. That's an ox and that's outfitted, right? Taped or welded into the side of a toothbrush. And that's used for sneaking up on somebody and just nicking them right there in the, in the, in the side of the jaw, the side of the neck, right? And you have an ox across you know, a vital artery in your neck, man, you got about five minutes to say your prayers before you bleed out. Did not see many oxes in there. I saw mostly bone crushers uh, and just regular, regular old kind of rudimentary prison shanks. Moving on, what else do we have on this list for prison slang? Your old lady, we've all heard the old lady. That's was coined on the streets by bikers. Biker gangs would call their, their wives, their girlfriends, old ladies. That's what they would refer to, uh, you know, their significant others, their old ladies. In prison, that's used across racial lines. That's everybody, black dudes, essays, uh, white boys, everybody's significant other is their old lady. I thought that's kind of gross because I think old ladies are gross and I would never want to have sex with an old lady. I'm kidding, of course. No, I'm not. I, there's no old women listening to this podcast. Uh, but yeah, so I didn't, I didn't like referring to women as old ladies. Um, but, uh, yeah, being sucked up, sucked up is another term you hear a ton in prison. Being sucked up normally means you're physically gaunt, skinny, sucked up, not a lick of fat on you because you've been smoking meth or crack. So in county jail, you see many junkies or dope fiends who come into county fully sucked up, meaning you're just, you've got, you've seen, you've seen these people, you've seen a picture of what a crackhead looks like. You've got no teeth in your head. You got, you can see your ribs. You haven't been doing much, but smoking white dope, crack, meth, heroin, etc. Uh, sucked up could also just in general mean you're doing bad. You're doing bad. Oh man, I was sucked up. I'm broke. I, I don't have any money on my books. Uh, I feel bad. I'm unhealthy. Being sick was another way we referred to somebody, but being sick wasn't actually being physically sick. You hear, I'm sick. You hear that all the time in prison. 
that means I feel bad. I'm demoralized. Right? So I, I, I would hit the gray goose on my way back from the courthouse to jail. And they'd be like, yo, how'd the, how'd the, the motion to dismiss your case go, Mitchell? And I'd say, yo, I'm sick. I'm sick. They're charging me with bribery too. The feds dropped the case, but now the state picked it up. I'm sick over it. Means I'm sick. Means like I feel bad. That's kind of how we described emotion. We equated it with being physically sick. Oh, I'm sick. My girl left me and she took the house and I got uh, 10 years to do. I'm sick. Um, yeah. Oh, what do we have on here? This was a funny one. My producer, Brian, brought this up. He, he said, how would you, when you were with your cellmate in your cell, if he needed to take a shit or masturbate, jerk off, how would he articulate that to his cellmate? <laughs> right? Because normally, because it's an embarrassing thing. Everybody's got to get the goo out. Everybody's got to beat off. One of, the, one of the prison guards caught me jerking off one night. Very embarrassing. I saw her the next day. It's a her. She, we caught eyes the next day after she caught me masturbating, and we just kind of smiled. We gave each other that knowing look like, yeah, we know you were moving your monkey last night, Mitchell, and that's okay. But what if you had to move your monkey, get the goo out, and you've got your cellmate in there? You would say, hey, I would say, hey, uh, so-and-so, spin a few laps. I got to take care of something. Right. And spinning a few laps meant go out to the yard on the next line movement and walk around. Make yourself scarce because I either got to take a take a doo doo or I got to or I got to get this goo out. Right. That's kind of how we would refer to it. Um, finally. Finally. Now, you guys, you've heard my journey from the streets. Streets are anything that isn't prison, by the way. So how we refer to society in prison is as the streets. So I could be a lawyer. I could be locked up on a DUI case and I'm a lawyer on the outside, but it's not the outside. It's the streets on the streets. I was a lawyer on the streets. I was a baker on the streets. I was da, 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 da. So you've heard my journey from the streets, from going hand to hand to blowing up, going big time, moving packs calling up the connect, the plug, saying, what's the ticket on one of those things to getting juxed by Jack boys, the stick up kids taxing me, telling me to run my shit. We know what running your shit is. That means give it up. Guy had a gun in my face. He goes, run it, run it. Where's it at? Run my shit to selling Coke, putting the smash, bagging it up, putting the two-step on it to getting blitzed by the one times to getting representative, you know, getting to jail, having action on my case, getting sentenced to getting put on the gray goose, sent up north to do my my bid upstate to catching fades when dudes would want to punk me out to hitting the main line what else? What else do we have on this list? I never did any gay shit. So there was never any six months to the gate witnessing people to carry in my burners, right? To get money on my books, you know, to 
rubbing shoulders with lifers, people doing all day. Now, finally, it's time to go home. What is going home? How do we refer to going home? Well, we called it going home. We called it hitting the bricks, getting to the gate, touching down. I used to call my boys and I'd say, yo, when we touch, when I touch, it's about to be on. And that was the sweetest feeling in the world. Seeing daylight again, man. Oof, I can't talk about it even. Tear up. That was, man, I just remember waiting on my daylight. Like when I come home and I hit the bricks, when I touch down, it's about to be some shit. So that's it, you guys. That's, that's really, you know, I know everybody, we use slang in our vernacular. We use Ebonics, uh, colloquialisms. We all use it. Civilians, everybody in our day-to-day lives. But that was the real deal way that we spoke in the streets, in the drug game incarcerated, in prison. And, uh, you know, happy to share it with you. I miss a lot of it. I don't miss these prison terms. I don't miss the prison slang, but man, I miss those days when I had money on the phone, you know, when I would look up and I would see, oh damn, I, is money on the line. B we got a custody calling me up, you know, now it's, you know, I got money on the email. Oh, you have a wire transfer from Athletic Greens for doing an ad read on a podcast, right? And all that money is traced by the government, by the man, and I got to pay the tax. But man, I miss the days when I was had money on the line, when I was getting money off the books. I miss them days because I miss talking like this. It's kind of why I do this podcast because I, you know, I can't, I can't <clears throat> articulate myself the way I used to do when I was a hustler when I was slinging, when I was moving packs, when I was rubbing shoulders with dudes doing all day. Man, there was kind of, that language was so, it was for us. And now it's for you. All right, you guys, we'll see you next week. Take care of yourselves. Peace out.